When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Happy January. It's a new year. What are you up to? How are things going? I hope they're going really great. Today, we have nine questions and they're all wonderful, all about different topics. So let's just jump right in. Question number one says, hi, Katie, why is it when my therapist asks me what I need during moments in session, it's as if every option, idea, or logic leaves my brain, then all I can say is, I don't know. I'm starting to annoy myself with that answer, but I genuinely don't know. It's so frustrating because part of me can sense that I probably do need something in that moment but that information doesn't exist to me. She always says that it can be a case of trying to, uh, of trying things to see what works. But then I'm thinking, what are the options? It's like I need more data to make an informed decision. I genuinely get confused and frustrated at the moment because I feel like I should just know by now and stop giving the same answer. I get so annoyed with myself that it takes me away from what was coming up for me in the first place. Interesting. nine months later, and I still haven't got a clue. She obviously knows that I'm struggling with this, but I feel like it annoys the hell out of me. So it must be frustrating for her as well. Sometimes I feel like most clients are fighting to be her favorite client. I'm just trying not to be the client she dreads each week. I know you've answered questions before with not knowing how you feel, but knowing what I need seems like another puzzle that I'll, oh, another puzzle I'll never solve. Sorry, this is so long. Thanks for all you do. Of course. And this is a great question because It's incredibly common to not know. Now, this can happen for a lot of reasons, but the reason that I hypothesize or what I would assume is probably the most common reason is that when we were growing up, either due to neglect or another form of abuse, we were told through those maybe direct messages or indirect messages that us having needs wasn't okay. Therefore, we learned to like stuff them down or not really quote unquote need them because no one was going to meet them anyway, right? Or if we asked for them, then we were punished more intensely. Therefore, having needs was dangerous. So the idea that a therapist could ask us what we need is almost like triggering. We're like, total dissociation, right? Because we're like, I don't even know. Or like instead of the dissociation, it could just be no one ever asked us. Maybe no one was there for us. Therefore, when someone does ask, we legitimately don't know because no one's ever asked, right? We don't even know what a need looks like. 
and another potential. So that's my my like primary hypothesis. But another road I might go down just to find out is if being asked direct questions is like too intense for you or maybe too triggering. Therefore, you kind of go blank. And that could be kind of a low grade dissociation where you're like, oh, <clears throat> this is too much emotionally. Uh, you know, I don't know what to do with it. And so you like blank out. Your brain's like, cannot compute. I'm overwhelmed. And that could be part of it too. So it could be any of those things. Um, I don't, not that you're even asking why this happens, but a way to kind of circumvent this would be when we're not feeling overwhelmed, like right now. Let's say we're feeling good. Today's a pretty decent day. Then now's the time I want you to think about the things that could potentially be soothing to you. Now, I know it's not maybe what you need in the moment, but what do you think in the last moment where it was overwhelming? Are you able to think back on that and maybe what you need? Or if everything's too triggering to think about in the moment, anytime, what do you find soothing? What sounds nice to you? Like, for example, I love a bubble bath, but not everybody likes those. So some people might find it soothing. Some people might not. Do you find, uh, you know, I don't know, being around a fireplace nice, hot cocoa perhaps, or a cup of tea, or do you like going for a walk, or do you like talking to a certain person, or do you like it when someone like rubs your back when they're trying to console you, or maybe plays with your hair, like my grandma used to play with my hair in church when I was growing up? Consider some of those things, because whatever we find soothing, we're going to want to tap into that. And then write it down, make a list either on our phones or in even just in a notebook of any kind. We want to make a note of it so that later when we have our next session, we can bring it into our therapist and say, hey, here are some of the things that I usually need or things that are soothing. We can try these out next time I freeze up and say, I don't know. Because in the moment, we're not gonna, we're not quite there. We're not going to be able. And that's okay, right? Something's too overwhelming. So we have to kind of find another way in, find another way to get that answer without directly being like, what do you want? What do you want? Because then it's almost like even her asking it, like, what do you need? Because you're having trouble with it too, that can also kind of like snowball on itself. I've had patients uh, have trouble with stuff like this in the past where they'll have trouble with something whether it's a homework assignment I give or whether it's a certain type of technique we're trying, you know, like a new tool. And they have so much trouble with it that when I ask them to try it again, they're like, I can't do that. And I'm like, well, you might be able to now, but they have like a block, right? They're like, no, I can't. And even the thought that they would have to try again is like stressful and overwhelming and essentially makes it so they can't. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, now we had a comment on this that says, hey, Katie, similar to this, what should I do when people ask how they can support me? This question tends to come up at university or places with a similar structure. I have no idea how they can help. And what if I suggested something and they're not able to help in that way or they think it's too much? That's up to them. You can't control that. Then also, I don't know what is helpful. I've managed a lot on my own, but I want support. How do I ask for it when I don't know what I want or need? When I ask for it, or when I ask what it is they can offer, they always are very vague. I have complex PTSD, if that helps at all. Okay. A lot of times we know that we need support, but we struggle to ask for it. Kind of even for the reasons I mentioned 
previous, like we could have been neglected or abused. This person has complex PTSD. So it's no surprise to me that you don't know how to ask for support. And you're afraid that if you do, it's going to be too much. Maybe growing up, you were told you were too much, too dramatic, too sensitive too whatever, or you were, you know, taught to be kind of like that freeze or the fawning where we extremely people please. So we don't get harmed again. Um, so the idea that we would tell someone we need help makes us very vulnerable and that can be really scary. And so you might want to, just like I told the person before, you might want to consider what would be supportive to you and your concern about it being too much or they won't be able to help. We aren't going to know if we don't first ask. And you can have different levels of support. For example, like let's say I'm trying to consider what what I want to ask my friends and family for. A low level of support could be like, you know, just call and check in on me every couple of days or once a week or whatever. Higher level of support could be like, it'd really be helpful if, you know, you could drive me to my therapy appointment or if we could hang out, you know, usually on Sundays, I have a really tough day. Do you think we could have like a standing get together that day? Right. Or even more intense. Could you help me pay for therapy or could you you know, could we move in together? Or I don't know. Um, could you help me find a group to attend? Could you help me find a therapist? Um, any of those kind of more intensive, more time-consuming things. Those are all things that we can ask for from for people. Like I would ask from my friends to like show up for me, to hang out with me and to, you know, I don't know, at least check in once a week, like have a little conversation. How are you doing? What's going on? How, you know, how are you hanging in there with family during the holidays or whatever was going on? Do you know what I mean? You need those little check-ins. And so just consider what kind of support that you might need. Do you need someone to check in on you and make sure you take your medication every day? That might be a higher needs ask, but it could be something you could ask from for a roommate or a close friend or family member. Um, yeah, so consider some of the things that would be helpful for you. And based on the closeness or the amount of time, you know, you spend with that person, you can kind of decide what you think will be most likely something that they can do. And if we don't ask, we don't know. And they can always say, oh, I can't do that. Like if you, let's say I was your friend and you were asking me for extra support and you're like, hey, can we hang out every Sunday? I'd be like, I can't do Sunday, but I could do Friday. Friday is my like most relaxed day with work and just catching up on things, trying to wrap it up for the week, right? There's, there can be some, you know, give and take in it. And it's up to the person that you ask to tell you whether or not they can do it. And it's not your fault if they're like, oh, that's too much for me, for them, not for you. You can ask for whatever. And if you need it, you need it. There's no judgment around that, but it's up to the other person to offer what they can, Right. And so since people don't really know what to offer, I would encourage you to consider what would feel good and what you could need. Making sure since you have complex PTSD, let's make sure it's not, um, and you need to reassure me, reassure me, reassure me. That's actually not very healthy behavior. I would encourage you instead to start seeing a therapist, work on boundaries, understanding your own internal dialogue, all that good stuff. But they can support you by checking in, by being there and by supporting therapeutic decisions like getting you there, paying for things, blah, blah, blah. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. Now, question number two says, Hey, Katie, I hope you're well and have had a wonderful Christmas. I did. Thank you so much. This isn't really a question, but I wanted to ask if it's possible for you to maybe try and do some more videos about sexual abuse, siblings and family members. 
the trauma and how to move forward when you really don't have an option for them to not be part of your life. Sorry to ask. I know you have a few videos on that already. That's okay. Thank you for all you do. You really are amazing. Now we have add-ons to this, which is why I kind of made it into a question because people had questions. Now, I am more than happy to do videos on sexual abuse and trauma and moving forward. The thing I'm going to push back on here is you don't really have an option for them not to be part of your life. Now, I know there's a period of time often where we can't move out, right? And we can't get away. But I would, I cannot encourage you strongly enough to try to make that option a reality. Whether that's like, if we're 16, we get a job and we start earning money and we start saving so that we can move out. Or maybe we ask a friend if they want to move in together. Or if we have a friend who already has, maybe they have spare space in their home. You can ask if you can move in there. I know these aren't ideal situations. I'm just telling you that we need to make a plan for you to get the hell out of there. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, our siblings or our family members don't, we don't have to cut them off or have them not be part of our life, but I want you to have the option to not see them when you're, when you don't feel up to it. So you don't live there. And I think that's really important and don't give them keys to your apartment or home or wherever you move to. Don't allow them access like that. It's again, putting boundaries in place that are healthy and reasonable and separating yourself so that you get to choose when to engage with them. It's not that it's all or nothing. We don't have to cut them out or have a really close relationship, but we have to find a way to give ourselves the options to decide if we want to see them or not. And then, you know, once we're removed from that trauma or from those toxic and abusive relationships, I honestly think also at that point, you'll feel a little bit freer to engage in therapy and begin the healing process. Okay. And so I'm happy to talk about it more. Um, I guess I would need to know. Um, I mean, I can answer it here. Like the moving forward is, is kind of that, like finding a way for you to get some space. Now I know some people are like, but I can't afford it. We need to put a plan together. Like I said, things are not perfect. I've even had, um, my friend Hannah Hart wrote about this in her book, so it's no secret to anybody. But when she was growing up, because her mother was so severely mentally ill, she moved in with a friend for the last, I think, two years of high school or last year of high school. Um, and I know that's not ideal. No one would say that's a great situation for her. Or, you know, it might even been hard on the friend's family, but they offered it. You just don't know until you ask. And if the situation at home with your family and your siblings is not safe, and you're over, I want to say it's over the age of, is it 13 or 14? You can decide you want to live somewhere else. I know that that might be complicated, but there are going to be times in all of our lives where we have to make tough decisions in order to keep ourselves safe and allow us to grow and to feel better. Because yes, family can be important, but it can also be incredibly abusive and hurtful. And even if we aren't in a position where we want to not be a part of it, like not engage with them at all, which is totally fine. That's all our choice. I do think it is imperative that we find a way to put some distance between us. So again, we can choose to engage or not. And that will allow you to move forward. I I know this is a strong statement, but I do not believe that if we're still being abused and still living in an abusive household, that it's a safe time for us to dive into the trauma and try to heal. I just from what I know about trauma work and what I've, the work I've done with patients over the years, and even talking to my friend, Dr. Lex Altman, who's a trauma specialist, I just do not see that being good. 
I don't think that's possible. Okay. Now there was an add-on that said, could you explain a little about what counts as non-contact child sexual abuse? Of course. I've tried Googling something that I experienced, but it's not clear and there's not a lot of info. Can it be sexual abuse if there's no contact and would probably not have been so impactful if I hadn't been such a sensitive toddler? Look at that judgment already, a sensitive toddler. You were sensitive because you're human and your needs probably weren't being met and you were told that you're too much. All toddlers are sensitive, by the way. My friends, the kids throw tantrums for the silliest of things. Like not, not the mom not knowing that they wanted to wear pink socks and they put on green. Or they wanted goldfish, but they, they wanted the colored ones, not the orange ones. Kid, t- toddlers are sensitive. They're experiencing everything. That's why they call them like three-nagers and the terrible twos, where our emotions feel very out of control. And we don't have a ton of ways to communicate healthfully if our parents aren't teaching us. So anyways, I'm just pushing back against that sensitive toddler statement. Now, non-contact sexual abuse is when um, anything sexual is shown to us. This could be through pornography. This could be through being in the same room when sexual acts are being done. This can be someone performing a sexual act on themselves right in front of us. Um, Someone doing something inappropriate in front of us. Um, Anything like that. Uh, And when I say pornography, it can be magazines, it can be television, it can be, you know, them putting on a film, anything like that. That's all considered sexual abuse. It's just no contact. Um, it could even be saying something. Think of like the the nasty thing someone could say to us. That could be considered non-contact um, child sexual abuse. Now, I know, um, you know, I don't know your exact situation, so I can't speak to it, but hopefully that helps you, you know, it helps validate your experience. And then also you said that, you know, it wouldn't have been so impactful. I know there's shame and blame that comes along with trauma, but it was impactful because think of the resources you had. If you haven't checked out my inner child workshop or at least my videos on inner child work, I'd ins- and like encourage you strongly to ch- look into it because a huge part of me thinks that we need to talk to that toddler of you and let them know that it's okay to have big feelings and it's okay to experience life and feel overwhelmed because the situation you were in was very traumatic and very stressful. And of course you were traumatized and of course it was impactful. We need to see them. We need to remember what it was like to be them. We need to put ourselves back and have some conversations with younger us because right now it seems like we're just judging toddler us saying we're so sensitive and so things were so impactful when they shouldn't have been. There's a lot of shouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't, a lot of judgment. And it's not necessary. You were doing the best you could with the resources you had at the time. Another comment says also, how do you handle the disturbing body memories that don't have a clear actual memory of what happened? And how do you deal with the fact that it deeply affects you? But for the rest of the family, it just wasn't a big deal. I had to sleep with my dad for years and I hated it. Now I resent my mom for having also placed me in her role, but no one seems to care or even notice the damage. Other people's... um, I don't just want to call it validation, but other people's experience doesn't necessarily negate or accept ours. I guess accept's not the right word, but it's just like uh, validate or negate ours. Everybody has a different experience. And because you were the one that was affected, right? No one else seems to notice the damage. They weren't the one that had to sleep with their dad for years. They weren't the one that was uncomfortable with that. That's your experience. And that's okay. Them not feeling the same way doesn't make your experience any lesson or any less valid. 
you can still have that and not, they don't have to feel that way. I know that can feel shitty, but all that needs to take place is for you to acknowledge and validate your own experience experience without having someone outside tell you that it was bad. You already know it was bad. You already know there was damage. You already feel like shit about it. That's all that matters. It's all about our experience. I know the shame and the blame and the judgment, the embarrassment tells us that, oh, well, it must not have been that bad because then they, you know, then they would have noticed. And no, you felt like it was bad. You feel the damage from it. And that's all that is necessary, period. And so to combat that, my best advice is to pay attention to how you talk to yourself about what took place at home and your dad having to sleep with your dad for years. Pay attention to that. And I want you to use those bridge statements I talk about all the time to try to move that conversation or that narrative into a healthier place. Meaning instead of saying, you know, I must be overreacting or no one takes this as seriously as I do, or um, I'm so damaged, this is so fucked, or I don't know what you say. I'm so stupid for thinking and feeling like this. Instead, I want you to try to say something like, you know, I'm open to the thought or I, it's possible that it was bad for me. And that's why I feel that way. Or I'm open to trying to not talk so poorly to myself, right? Using those little bridge statements can help us feel a little bit better day after day, moment after moment, and we'll slowly move into a healthier place. Now for the first question on this said, how do you deal with body memories? You, my best advice is to find a somatic based therapist or somatic experiencing is the type of therapy, but they'll usually say they're somatic and um, based, but it's paying attention to where you feel certain things in your body, acknowledging it and usually moving through it. Um, Because a lot of times when we're traumatized, we like disconnect from our brain and our body. And that can lead to all sorts of things from body memories to eating disorder, behavior, self-injury, all sorts of stuff. Um, But kind of tapping back in and paying attention as we move our body can kind of shake out some of that. Um, But yeah, working with a trauma therapist or trauma specialist will be best. Okay. Um, there's There are two more add-ons, it looks like. The next one says, also, can it be considered traumatic to you as an adult if the experience wasn't traumatic as a child? The childhood sexual abuse I experienced was by trusted family members. I didn't feel traumatized when it happened, but I knew it was wrong and we'd get in trouble if anyone found out. But now I feel like I'm struggling with it and realizing that I don't remember things that I know have had to have happened. I hope this makes sense. That totally makes sense. And yes, we can be traumatized by an experience after the fact. I know it seems kind of strange for people because they're like, well, what if it wasn't that scary then? Sometimes we don't really know. I had a patient, oh God, this is, I don't even know. This is like one of my first jobs in North Hollywood, but she didn't realize how bad her childhood was and how abusive it was until she had her own child. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but I think kind of like what we're all struggling with, right? We look back at toddler us, child us, and we're like, geez, he or she was just so sensitive, so dramatic, all this judgment. And we have all these thoughts about it and judgment around it. And we get so angry and so upset. And we don't, the shame that makes us think something's wrong with us. And then we're around a child that age, or we do some of the inner child work, or in my patient's experience, have a child of our own. And then we realize just how fucked up that was. And it sucks. It's a hard realization. It can be really, really difficult. Even one of my girlfriends had said something recently where she was like, you know, having my own kids as trying as it is 
has given me like new respect for my parents. And then I had another friend that was like, you know, is having children as trying as it is, has made me realize just how fucked up my mom was and the way she interacted with me, right? So it can cause a lot of things to come up. And I say all that to say that you can definitely be traumatized after the fact because at the moment we didn't know any better, we might have been told a certain thing and we just believe it because those people are supposed to love us and care for us. So it didn't seem so overwhelming, even though we knew it was wrong. And that wrong, that that internal ick, I like to call it, is a boundary being crossed and us not understanding and not knowing how to speak up for that or if it's okay to speak up, right? Because when we're young, we don't really know. And we we lean on a lot of other people to help show us the way because we're we're just so naive because we're, we're so, you know, we're just little babies. We're not supposed to know. They're supposed to protect us and they didn't. So yes, you can uh, be traumatized after the fact. And I think it's important you keep talking about it and you keep working through it and keep, you know, doing your best to piece it together. Trauma timelines can really, really help with that. Okay, final add-on says, could you maybe talk a bit about other coping skills than those that you've mentioned in your video? I always find myself endlessly scrolling through social media, which, which ends up harming me more. And I don't know what other coping skill I could use to replace that. Um, if social media is what you go to, find a game that isn't hurtful for you, like a candy crush. I know you're like, Katie, that's not really therapeutic. That's a distraction coping skill. So there are two kinds of coping skills. They're distraction-based and process-based. Now, process-based, I would encourage you to please, please, please utilize the impulse log. I don't know if you've done that. Please try it. Also, full body shakes are something that we can do quickly in the moment, wherever, whenever. You know, you might just have to step out into a bathroom if you're in public or something, or I don't know. Step outside if no one's out there, stomp your feet, shake around. If anybody walks up, be like, oh, I thought there was a spider on me. And they'll be like, oh, you know. You got this. So those are some of the easy things to do in the moment. Um, Process-based would be to call, text someone, do the impulse log. Distraction-based would be like find a game that's because social media can be bad because first of all, we can purchase things within them, which I hate because my patients struggle with like impulse control and it can lead to like all sorts of chaos. Also, the comparison factor is horrible and it can just slowly make us feel like, you know, we can't compete with anybody. Everybody else has healthy, happy, better lives, makes more money, yada, yada, yada. And then also the third kind of unhealthy part is it can make us feel more disconnected. If we're like, oh, I didn't realize she did this. I guess I've kind of lost touch with her. We can start to like spiral out that way. So those are just some ideas. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hello, Katie. Hello. Every time I feel stressed, angry, or embarrassed, the first thing I do is dig my nails into my hand my skin to the point that my hand would turn red and the marks would stay from the morning until night. Yeah, it's very common. I don't know what I'm supposed to do or what makes me want to do this. Or is this even worth mentioning to my therapist? It's embarrassing. It's very, very common. Yes, please mention it to your therapist. Um, a couple of things. I actually consider this self-injury, not in the same way that, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't treat it the same way as other forms of self-injury where it's a little bit more conscious but this is still self-injury. And I would, hmm. yes, mention to your therapist and the ways that I would address this would be, because I had a ton of patients do this. I had a patient who used to pick her, her cuticles and her fingernails till she would like bleed. Her whole, all her fingers would just be mangled. I've had a patient who would scratch, same thing, leave these incredibly red marks or people um, who've woken up having dug into their arms due to stress. Now, a couple things. Um, 
we need to find some other ways to get an outlet for you, meaning get out the stress, anger, embarrassment, etc. Whether that's screaming into a pillow, talking to your therapist about it, please, please do. Um, journaling about it, uh, doing a full body shake like I just talked about. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but I have had my patient who used to wake up doing it wear uh, fitted cotton gloves at night. Not really thick, but you know, just those like little, I call them like little kid gloves. They're just very simple cotton gloves, but they're pretty snug. I want them to be pretty snug, not tight. I don't want them cutting off any circulation, but I want them snug so you don't do that. And you'll get used to wearing them and it'll take a little while until we get this under control. Now, during the day, my encouragement is to try to bring your attention to this. When you notice your stress level going up, like maybe it's something we have to look back on the last time we caught ourselves doing it or after the fact when we caught ourselves doing it. Um, What was happening? What thoughts went through our head? What could we do instead? Could we vent to someone? Could we vent in our journal? Could we kick our feet like the body shake, right? We got to get that energy out. Could we um, make a list about the things that we're stressed about and take some action to better manage that? Could we make a decision or say no to something so that we don't feel so overwhelmed? You know, there can be certain ways that we can try to navigate this, but please talk to your therapist about it. I know you feel embarrassed, but I want to tell you it's incredibly common. There's no need to think anything's wrong with you or anything's like out of control. We just have to figure it out. It's a it's a physical manifestation of what you're feeling. And so we have to give you another way to get it out. Um, also keeping your nails kind of short can help too. But those gloves at night, if you do this at night, I don't know if you do, but um, that can be really helpful. Also, since it's cold in general, I, you know, if you can wear gloves for a little bit longer when you come into the office or a little bit longer when you come home, it might help prevent us, especially if we feel like it's a really stressful day. Um, but yes, let's find some outlets for those experiences and those feelings because that's how it will get better. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hello, hello. How do you accept the fact that when you get told or diagnosed with something such as having trauma or anxiety, that you have such an issue playing it off, like it hasn't really happened to me? Invalidation and minimization are so common, especially with trauma, but with mental illnesses in general. But trauma, particularly because the minimization and invalidation that we gave to ourselves allowed us to continue forward. It's really adaptive. It helped us keep going. If we're like, oh, it wasn't that bad. You're okay. Not that big of a deal. Come on, Katie, you got this. Then I just move forward, right? It allows, it's like motivating in a very unhealthy way, but sometimes very necessary for survival to get us out of that situation. So that's why it happens. And it's going to take some time, what we call psychoeducation, which is like learning about our experience with it, getting to know how it feels. And there'll come a time, everybody's different. I've had patients, it takes like a month, some take six months, that they'll have this time in your life where all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, yeah, that's what this is, right? You might experience anxiety in some way, or you might see something that happened to you, happen to someone else and realize just how bad it is. Um, you might do some inner child work and have another revelation that way. Um, but there's always this period in therapy, especially when we feel like this, where we're like, oh, this isn't, this isn't really me. Nothing really bad happened. I'm overreacting, right? This minimization is talking down to ourselves. We'll come out of that because that talking down to minimization is like protective. And there'll be this time where we're like, oh yeah. And I know that that's like kind of a shitty answer, 
but continuing to learn about it, continuing to tap into your symptoms and what you experience and what you've told your therapist, like even talking to your therapist about this, it's okay to say like, hey, I find myself playing off my trauma and anxiety and acting like it's not really a thing that I struggle. I don't know why I'm having trouble accepting this. Can we talk about it? And they'll talk you through it. They can educate you about it. You could even say, why do you think I have this? It's okay to ask questions. I mean, you should also, it's your diagnosis. So you should feel like you agree with it. Even if we're like, hey, it wasn't that bad. But we should agree that yes, those are my symptoms, you know? So ask them about it. Talk about it. Feel free to question it. That's all healthy and okay. I just want you to know that, you know, it's really common to think that it's not that bad or to minimize it because that allowed us to succeed and to continue and to, to live essentially to survive, not really succeed so much. Okay. To add on, is a therapist supposed to tell us how bad our trauma is? Or is this something that we're meant to figure out or realize on our own? My therapist has mentioned trauma maybe two times in 12 months. And I'm wondering if he's withholding validation because I'm supposed to accept that I've been through a trauma on my own. I mean, it's not really a therapist's role, nor is it healthy for us to tell you how bad something is. The traumas, we're not going to rank it. I'm not going to say, oh, you have a really intensive trauma. I might say you have multiple traumas. Therefore, I think it's more of a complex PTSD situation rather than traditional PTSD. And yes, you might have severe symptoms or mild symptoms or moderate symptoms. And that's kind of how we would rank it. There's nothing about like how bad it was because the truth about that, that exact phrasing, like how bad was it? is more about your experience. If you experienced it as terrifying, terrible, the worst thing ever, that's what it is. If you experienced it as mild, but it got worse over time, that's what it is. It's all up to your experience and there's no judgment or classification that's needed around that. It's just accepted as it is. And so I'd assume your therapist has mentioned trauma a couple of times because it just is. And if you have questions about that, like, hey, do you think I have PTSD? Or, hey, I know you've mentioned trauma a couple of times. Do you think that's what I experienced? You can ask and you can talk about it, but they're not going to tell you how bad it is because it's just how you experienced it. It's exactly as you feel it to be. Now, I know many of you are like, but I, you know, negate it and minimize it like we talked about right before. A therapist is not going to say, oh, you don't think it's trauma? Then I don't think it's trauma. No, they're going to say, what happened to you was traumatizing and terrifying. And therefore, I think you have PTSD. You know, they're just going to keep with that. They're not going to allow you to be like, no, it's not. It's not that bad. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Oh, they're going to hold to it, but they're just not going to rank it. Okay. Another question says, good question. As an add-on, how can one deal with having had multiple tentative diagnoses that didn't feel right? I've been given so many labels like generalized anxiety disorder, social phobia, MDD, which is major depressive disorder, um, AN, which I assume is anorexia nervosa, BPD, borderline personality disorder, combined personality disorder, avoidant personality disorder, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, and BPD. Some did fit, but others, especially BPD, did not. Despite all therapists who knew me for longer time periods saying those labels weren't accurate, they still make me doubt my own experience as well as any new diagnosis that I might receive, such as autism. Okay, so I think when you've had multiple diagnoses that were not correct, it could behoove you with the therapist that you feel gets you and listens and is like, I don't think those are right, to talk you through it. Because it sounds like it's, first of all, very unethical I believe, you know, should be kind of illegal situations that you were in with a therapist because 
I don't know. I, I have a problem with people just handing out diagnoses without talking to someone about it and getting their feedback. I always feel like that's just not doing someone. That's not like a, a proper therapist practice. Meaning if I'm going to give a patient a diagnosis, I'll talk to them about it. I'll tell them the symptoms that I see lining up and I'll ask them if they think that that fits. Now, sometimes they agree, sometimes they don't. We talk about it. It's okay to disagree. I mean, there's some patients I have who come in with a diagnosis and they already disagree with it and we talk it through and we kind of decide on our own, take our time. And we may, I mean, most of the time, you know, like I had a patient who did not believe he was bipolar, but he definitely was. And it took a while for him to accept it right? Because it can be hard to accept, just like the first person was saying, to accept that what I've been through is a trauma. He had a hard time accepting that what he was struggling with was mania. But, you know, when um, I had him watch some videos, I gave him a couple of articles and things to read and consider. He uh, he came around. But if you don't feel like they've, if any of those diagnoses, that's a lot also. And I feel like, which one is it? What's going on? Although we can have a lot of diagnoses too. So no judgment there. I just feel like if you don't feel like it's right, talk to your therapist about it. Talk through each of them that you didn't feel were was appropriate for you. And let's figure out which ones are appropriate. So you feel more heard and understood because that's really, really important in the therapeutic process. And I'm sorry you had to go through that, okay? And hopefully in that process, it will allow you to doubt less when it comes to these diagnoses, you know, so that you feel like you're part of it, not like it's just being given to you. That's why I don't even like the, the when people say like, I've been given so many labels. I'm like, I want you to participate in that, in your diagnostic process. You know, that's a healthier way, I think. Now, someone asked, would you as a therapist even talk about every diagnosis with your patient? Yes, I would. I'm from Germany and I just started therapy. There needs to be a, oh, there needs to be a diagnosis on the letter for insurance. And I got a copy of this letter, but my therapist never talked to me about a diagnosis. Do you differentiate between diagnosis if you talk about it or not? Um, great question. Now, a couple of things I have recognized over the years from many of you that therapists do not always talk about the diagnosis they're considering giving for many reasons. I think a lot of times they just haven't planned to share it or it's just not the process that they go through. I don't really understand why they wouldn't. It's always part of what I do to talk. I talk people through. I want to make sure again that we're on the same page because it's with my expertise and your experience that we come to the correct conclusion. Just my expertise could be part of it. But when I mentioned that to you, you might say to me, oh, I didn't tell you I'm also doing this other thing. And this other behavior could change the diagnosis. And if I don't talk with you about it, it could be missing a huge piece. So there are no diagnoses that I do not talk to my patients about or talk them through to make sure that we're on the same page. But I do know that a lot of therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists, unfortunately, do not practice that. I feel like it should be something that we're, like I said, it's like an ethical issue. I feel like it should be required, but unfortunately it's not. Okay. Question number five says, Hey Katie, I hope you're enjoying the holidays. I am. Thank you. Question. Have you ever played dodge eye contact with a client before? I have not. Whenever I have an in-person session with my therapist, I've noticed that it isn't just me. She seemingly has her own awkward moments with eye contact. I'll look at her and she'll look away or vice versa. Can you shed some insight on it for me, please? Love you for life. Thanks for all that you do. Of course. Um, I personally haven't done this, but I could see, I mean, 
therapists are human too. So maybe we said something that we're like, oh, that's kind of cringy, or we're trying to contemplate something, or maybe, I don't know, maybe we're having our own difficult day, right? We could not want to make eye contact or, but I, other than that, I really don't see a reason. Um, I usually maintain somewhat steady eye contact with my patients. I don't want them to feel like I'm, you know, like really staring at them, but like soft eye contact, look away, come back, you know, soft, um, but there. And if they make eye contact, I always meet it. Um, unless they tell me it's like triggering or overwhelming. And then I'll ask them what they would prefer for me to do. And I'll try my best to, you know, match that. But I do not avoid eye contact with my patients, but I would assume that if, you know, she's having an awkward moment or feeling a little off that day, I could see her dodging that. I do have a ton of patients who dodge my own, my eye contact, meaning that they're going to dissociate. So they don't want to make eye contact and they kind of start to space out, or they are talking about something really difficult. So they stare at the floor. That's really common. I have patients that do that. Um, especially when I'm trying to get them to not dissociate, I might call attention to it and ask them if they can make closer eye contact, if they can look at my shoulder, you know, have them move up to things. I'll be like, hey, can you look at my hand? Try to move the hand closer to my face. Um, We can do things like that. So my patients almost always try to dodge eye contact when talking about something difficult or struggling in general, but I, I will meet them with eye contact if, you know, if I can. There was a comment on this that also is an add-on. How do you build up being comfortable with eye contact in therapy? I feel like my therapist is looking into my soul and I just can't maintain the eye contact. A lot of people agreed with this and said that they felt like they were looking into their soul. It's that vulnerability piece. And I think a couple of things. By continuing to share and being like courageous with your story and allowing yourself to be vulnerable, it will get easier over time. However, it's going to be really uncomfortable for a while. And so my encouragement would be, even when you don't want to, to try to bring the eye contact back and it's okay to take breaks, but then try to come back. It's like a muscle. We're just building this muscle and tell your therapist that you're going to try to do this. Be like, I struggle to make eye contact and maintain it because I just feel like you're like reading my soul. And, and that's not the therapist doing anything in particular. It's actually us feeling too vulnerable and that being uncomfortable or expressing or, you know, talking about, I guess, things that have happened to us that we don't normally talk to people about or things that we are scared to share or things that we're afraid we're going to be judged about. And so making eye contact, we can sometimes worry that either they're going to judge us and we're going to see it on their face or that they're not going to meet our eye contact or they're going to, you know, look away and it's going to be invalidating in some way or we're not going to feel held and supported. You know, there could be a lot of different reasons. And so, yeah, that's kind of why we tend to do it and doing it little by little more and more will help. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. It says, Hey Katie, the only reason that makes me write this is that no one knows me here. I'm very embarrassed about what I'm doing. I was raped by my brother years ago, had a freeze response, very common and sexually abused by an extended family member when I was six or seven. I hate Everything about any sexual interaction, even the idea of getting married and having kids makes me disgusted. Most of the time, I can't stand myself and my body. Even though I kind of made peace with the experiences I had, thanks to my therapist, we didn't really talk about it that much, but knowing that someone knows was enough to make me move forward. I still keep doing one thing over and over again. I keep touching my private parts, trying to reach that orgasm. Then I stop and I feel so bad afterwards for doing this. 
English is not my first language, so excuse me if I couldn't explain this right. I just hate, hate, hate doing it. I even hate any kind of hug from anyone, but of course I don't push people away when they do it because I know they didn't mean anything bad. I just don't understand why I masturbate or use masturbation as a way to calm myself. I keep imagining myself being raped over and over and it doesn't seem to bother me. I'm so confused, too embarrassed to tell my therapist about it. Okay, I cannot encourage you enough to work up the courage to tell your therapist in one way or another. But there's a, I have a video. Um, I think what would, it'd probably be masturbation as self-harm could be a helpful video. It's one, I have one called that. And also I have a video called uh, hypersexuality as a result of sexual abuse. Those could both be really helpful videos. So check those out. Um, anyways, the reason this is happening could be, there's many reasons, but I'm going to give you a few of the most common. Now, number one, like I said, masturbation can be used as self-harm. Sometimes we can do it to like re-traumatize ourselves. And I know you might be thinking, well, why the hell would we do that, Katie? That sounds crazy. Why would we want to be harmed again? Why would I want to be traumatized again? It's not that you want that to happen again. But the interesting thing about our brain and our bodies is that when something doesn't make sense, when we have like this stumbling block, this trauma, this issue that's kind of like in the way, just it doesn't make sense no matter how many times I look at it, right? It wants to try it over and over and over again to try to get a different outcome. Meaning, okay, if I engage in this again, maybe it could be like healthy and happier. Maybe I'll enjoy it or maybe it'll feel better. Maybe, I don't know. It's trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense. And that's why we can want to engage in something over and over and over again. Also, on the flip side, and what I kind of think is happening here is that because it's calming, it is kind of tying us back to our our childhood, which is usually where what a lot of us go to when we need soothing, because that might have been the only way you were shown attention or love or support. Maybe the rest was like neglect and abuse in other ways. And so that actual interaction as wrong as we now know it to be, feels very good to us. And I know you're like, but why the hell does it feel good? Also, our bodies are wired for it to feel good. So don't judge yourself on it. I've had a ton of patients and community members tell me that they did orgasm during a rape or during abuse as a child. Why did they do that? It's like your body betrays you. That's not, that's like a physiological response. That's not something we unfortunately have control over, but that feeling can be soothing. I mean, we can talk about it from a lot of reasons, like even the fact, the actual act of our body having an orgasm releases some feel good chemicals and hormones. That's why it feels so good, right? Having that response is something that we're going to want to go back to. And the only way we know it to happen is through that. And I know it can, you're like, this is a mind fuck. It is. I, I could try to make it sound like it, it's easy and it's not so bad, but I know it's hard. I know it's like, confusing and there's so much shame associated with it. And like you said, you're embarrassed to tell your, you don't even want to tell your therapist about it. I just want you to know it's incredibly common and it's coming out of that need to, to soothe and calm. And we don't really have any other skills or tools to use. And the reason we keep engaging, I think is hoping that it'll, we'll process it and it'll, you know, be better next time kind of thing. And so my encouragement to you is to try to find some other ways to self-soothe. I've mentioned quite a few different things throughout this podcast. Give those a try. Maybe we take a bath. Maybe we go for a walk. Maybe we do a full body shake. Maybe we pet a dog. Maybe we color. Maybe we play Candy Crush or some, you know, non-harmful game or watch some silly TV show like Keeping Up With Our Kardashians or 90 Day Fiance, something just very light, easy to watch. Maybe a Food Network show or HGTV, something where you just kind of turn your brain off and like, just watch. 
doing anything like that, to try to find a way to calm you without having to engage in what I, I assume is kind of almost like abusing ourselves again. I don't want you to re-traumatize yourself, but it's like the only way you know. And so we have to try to find some new ways. And it's going to take some trial and error. No judgment if you go back to doing this for a while. But I want you at least to try. My encouragement, like if you were my patient, your homework would be to try at least two different coping skills and then wait 30 minutes. And I allow, then I'd allow you to, you know, engage in the masturbation or whatever kind of act you feel calms you the most but I want you to try something else because I think this is kind of like an impulse log could be helpful too because this is kind of like an impulse, okay? It's incredibly common. No judgment needed here. It's something that I've worked on with many patients, heard from many community members over the years. I'm not lying to you. Nothing's wrong with you. We'll, We'll figure it out. And please work up the courage slowly but surely to tell your therapist, okay? Let's move on to question number seven. It says, Merry Christmas, Katie, Sean, and Kenyans. Merry Christmas. Please, can you talk about recovering from narcissistic abuse, including PTSD symptoms, cognitive dissonance, gaslighting, guilting, etc.? Specifically, talking about steps to recovery would be amazing. Now, there's a lot to this, and I'm going to do my best. But when we're recovering from narcissistic abuse, the number one thing that I really encourage is for you to disconnect from that person. Because if you don't, you're going to continue to be abused by them. And it's almost that like, uh, I think it was Alexa that said it, but I've also found it through research and in Body Keeps the Score. Uh, Vander Kolk talks about this a lot. If we're continuing to be in an abusive situation, we're not going to be able to heal from it because it's still happening, right? It's almost like you're trying to suture up a wound while someone cuts the stitches that you're just putting in it's never going to heal. We're never going to be able to get through it. And if you're able to at least limit to the maximum amount your contact with them so that you can start to try to make sense of what's happened and start healing. Getting into therapy would be another great thing. And then the biggest part of this and the, the kind of the mind fuckery that comes with narcissistic abuse is our lack of trust in ourselves. Because like this person mentioned, the cognitive dissonance, like, oh, these two things can't coexist together. Why do I think and feel what? Uh, The gaslighting. That's not what really happened, but that's what I remember. You're remembering it wrong. You're crazy. Oh my gosh, maybe I am, right? And the guilting, they always motivate through guilt. So we can think that everything we do, anything we do is always wrong and we should feel guilty about it. And we have no right to feel bad, sad, mad, our only correct feeling is guilt. All of that needs to be combated by healthy discourse within ourselves, meaning pay attention to what you're saying to yourself. Start noticing the thoughts that you have and let's use some bridge statements. Pick your most common two. Let's start there. Build up to three, four, five. I wouldn't do more than like 10, but we're going to, every time we have that thought, I want you to slowly, we're kind of creating a new habit. So it's a little new muscle. And we start off maybe with just one thought. When I have that thought, maybe that thought is, God, I can never remember things correctly. I want you instead to say, you know, I'm open to the possibility that this is a gaslighting thought and it's not helpful. And I don't really want to engage with it anymore. We don't have to make it more positive, but we do have to call it out and stop it in its track so that those thoughts don't continue, that that belief or that narrative that we've been told through abuse and abuse and abuse and abuse, that we can stop it. And that conversation with ourselves is going to be incredibly helpful in healing. Okay. Next after that. So we have, right, we have to distance ourselves, therapy, notice our self-talk, 
Then I would say another step would be to slowly, with the help of a therapist checking in, build a little support system. And I say little because I don't want to be more than three other people. I want these to be people that maybe do, when you were in that relationship with a narcissist, maybe it's even a member, member of your family, but let's say it's a friend that's like, man, your bro- your dad is crazy or your brother seems crazy, or your mom, right? They were like, what? Keep that person around. But it needs to be the people that either called out the narcissist to you or to the narcissist themselves or new people that we bring into our lives. And that's why we need our therapist there to check on if these people are okay for us or not, because we're going to struggle to trust our gut and to know what that is because hello, gaslighting, PTSD, you know, guilting, all that stuff and build that up a little bit. And that's really, those are the steps that I would work on for now. I, there, there's going to be others depending on how it's affected you most and what really happened. And was this a marriage? Was this a parent? You know, how long has this been going on? There's going to be a lot of different things. I mean, healthy boundaries are going to be really key for you. I have a boundaries workshop um, that I offered. I'm two weeks ahead. So probably the last uh, Friday. So it's the 6th and the 13th, I think of January is when it's live, but it's going to be filmed and accessible in perpetuity. So I'd encourage you if you can to check that out because boundaries can be really helpful. I'll also have videos going out about it as well. Um, but those will be some of the steps that will help you detangle this web that the narcissist has wove around you um, or weaved, weaved around you. I don't know. Anyway, um, and get you out so you can see clearly again. There was a comment that said, are there particularities to be considered during healing if both parents and grandmothers were or are pathological narcissists? What if the parents had comorbid disorders such as histrionic personality or if they were sadistic? The When it comes to being raised around people, having like a bunch of people in our family who were pathological narcissists and like really damaging, it doesn't change the steps necessarily, but it does usually mean that the the story we've been telling ourselves is a little bit more ingrained, meaning that there'll be more defense mechanisms and pushback from the patient. I'm speaking as a therapist, right? If I was working with you and you've, you were raised by a narcissist and had a whole family of narcissists, like, you know, this person saying like they have histrionic personality disorder and both grandmothers were not, it's going to be more ingrained in you. Now that doesn't mean it's harder, easier, better, whatever. It just means that it might take, it has a possibility of taking more work and potentially more distancing from family if they're all kind of toxic and engaging in this. And even the ones that aren't narcissists might engage in this unhealthy dance, right? They can kind of get you pulled into it. I've talked in the past about the family dance and how good or how toxic it can be. Um, But when we try to change our dance, it's really hard. And the reason being is let's say, and this is what I've always kind of used to describe, let's say our whole family is doing the Macarena right? And we come in, we go home, the music is the same. And that's the song. We know the moves. Hey, Macarena, ha ha, right? We're doing it. We're doing it. We know the music. But then we leave and we're like, I fucking hate the Macarena. I don't want to do that anymore. It's really unhealthy. It makes me feel bad. I don't think I can have needs. I always think I'm crazy, right? And then I just feel so guilty. Shit, shit, shit. I hate it. And so I go out and I go to therapy. And instead I learn, uh, I don't know, a waltz. Then I come back into the Macarena and they don't like it. And they're going to fight you because it doesn't work. Everybody's doing the Macarena. Like get in the, you know, get in line, do your thing. And you're like, absolutely not. I don't know how to waltz in a shirt like here, but you know, imagine me like spinning and looking so nice, you know? Um, 
that's why it's going to be hard and that pushback is going to be intense. And that's why it can be more helpful for us to distance ourselves for a while while we do this work so that we can really learn that new dance so that when we go towards the Macarena, we don't engage. And if someone gives pushback, we're like, that's okay. I understand. I, I, it's okay. I'm going to leave. Right. And we have the boundaries to be able to remove yourself. If you keep talking to me that way, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to leave. If you keep engaging in this way, I'm going to have to go or I'm not going to come back, you know, to Christmas next year or whatever it might be. Right. Um, that would, it, that's just because it's a little more entrenched. It's, it's, it's more pervasive in your family, right? There's more people with it. And so there's nothing really, the particularities would be more intensive, more um, potentially longer term work, but everybody's so different. It's hard to say. Some people, you know, even though it's ingrained in them from their childhood, they're like, primed for change. They're like, I cannot do the Macarena anymore, right? And others have a harder time. So it just depends on you. But the distancing will probably be a little bit more difficult for you since it sounds like it's like majority of your family. Okay. Now there was another comment said, what are some different steps to take? When is it, when it's abuse from a narcissistic, narcissistic partner versus abuse from a narcissistic family member? And how can we support someone who is fighting to take those steps? Um, I mean, the distancing is the important part and you can do it no matter if it's family or a partner. You know, no one says we have to stay in relationships. I know we can feel like we have to. Maybe there's financial components, but there's nothing to say we can't prepare to leave or stay with someone for a little while while we get that done and while we save our monies. Um, if it's a partner, we can probably move back home. If it's at home, we can maybe move out with a friend or something like that. Um, it doesn't really it doesn't really make a difference. Um, but if it's a partner and there are children involved, all I can say is please keep your receipts on things, meaning like text messages, emails, you know, I know you want to block them and delete everything, but I'd encourage you to start keeping those things. Because one thing I do know about narcissists is once called out on things that they've done, they're going to de deny, 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 lie, lie, lie. And they'll have other people in their life that their only role is to be what they call like a flying monkey, which is they only hear their side of the story. And these flying monkeys are usually short-term relationships, like friendships that they've made that aren't very good, but the person only hears their side and is like, man, this person's been wronged by everybody. Oh, and they like believe their lies. And then when you come into the space and you're like, no, that never happened. They're like, yeah, it did. This is what happened, you know? And so if you have a partner like that and you have children involved or there has to be a divorce, I want you to have all of those documents and have all that evidence to support what you're saying, because I can guarantee you they're never going to fess up. Um, one of the things a narcissist I think is, I don't, I'd, I'd hope that someone could, but it's very difficult for them to apologize. So I don't think we're going to get any owning up for anything there. Um, so that's really the only difference when it comes to a partner versus a family member is, you know, finances, kids, divorce, things like that. Now, the way to support someone is to be there in a way that you can. Remember, it's not all about giving to people exactly what they need. We also have to be able to take care of ourselves. So if you have space in your home and you're like, hey, I could let them live with me for a month while they find a place to live, we could offer that. We can just check in on them. Remember, the narcissist will tell them that anybody who's trying to put a wedge between them and their person is an asshole, a bitch. They're stupid. We hate them. I don't know where they came from. Why are they here? Blah, blah, blah. They'll try to throw any mud they can. So the best way is to be really unassuming and non-invasive. So that means we just want to spend time. We just want to see them. So good to see you. Be nice to the narcissist in their life so that you can still come around. Um, it's just a way to, so you can ensure that you're there when they need. But again, don't give more than you have to give. Okay. 
Now, the final question says also, is healing from narcissistic abuse different than just plain abuse because the person is an abusive jackass, but not a narcissist? It really depends. I think the big component here is how much manipulation took place. And it can happen with plain abuse and narcissistic abuse. Abuse can cause, I don't know, it can happen with the like side of manipulation. Not always, but you almost always with narcissistic abuse, but not always with other abuse. We don't always see manipulation, but I would say most of the time we do like 70% of the time. So I don't really think there's that big of a difference. I think Again, it just depends on the level of manipulation because I think that's the key when it comes to narcissistic abuse that feels different. Is that like erosion of our ability to trust ourselves and our memory and our just our gut, right? That that feeling that the way that we remember everything is just wrong and we're always just wrong and things are just bad. That that comes, I mean, that can come out of abuse too because think of shame and blame and guilt, but it can be really pervasive with narcissistic abuse. So overall, I would say it's not any different. It's more case by case. It just depends on what happened and what took place in these situations. Um, and that would be that would how that would be how it would differ. And that's how the healing would be different is depending on the person and the situation and how they also perceived it. Remember, our own perception of the abuse is what makes it different or more difficult or less difficult or how long it's been or, um, you know, how long we waited to come into therapy or how many relationships have we had that are like this? You know, how many times we've been abused? There's a lot of different factors. And I don't think it so much depends on the abuser as it does, you know, the overall experience of the person who was abused. Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, hi, Katie. During this past week, I found myself getting unreasonably annoyed when others, especially family and extended family members, have been sick, and it's definitely not the first time this has happened. It wouldn't be the same if it um, if it would be anything serious, of course. Oh, okay, we wouldn't get irritated if it was serious. I've experienced my dad getting cancer, which was a whole different story. But when they have the cold or the flu, I cannot stand the self-pity. I'm boiling inside when they feel sorry for themselves or others are expressing sympathies for them when it's clearly not that bad. Even if it's my nieces or nephews that are sick, every time they whine or complain, I feel the anger building up inside. If I'm sick myself, I get even more annoyed when someone expresses sympathy for me. Interesting. I brush it off and always say it's not bad and I joke about it. Possibly I use my own symptoms to shut the other person down and downplay their symptoms. Definitely not a charming trait of mine. I always get really uncomfortable when someone quote unquote feels sorry for me, especially my mom, as it feels fake. Even when getting really sick and ended up in the hospital for a month a few years back, I didn't want to call my parents. I lived in a different country at this point. When I finally did, I joked with my dad about the ambulance helicopter that I had to take there and downplayed everything to make it seem less bad. Do you have any ideas on why this might be such a big thing for me? And do you have any tips on how I can get past it? How I can get past it? Thank you for a great podcast and everything you do. Greetings from Sweden. Of course, I have a lot of thoughts. Anger is such an interesting emotion. It's such a helpful emotion because it it's there for a reason. And so I have some homework for you. I have some potential answers, but a lot of questions. And the reason I say anger is so great is because it usually tells us of some underlying something, right? We call anger like a secondary emotion, although many people are like, it's technically considered primary. It's a protective emotion is what I would call it. Anger is protective. If I have my spines out and I'm like, you sons of no one wants to come around me. In fact, I probably don't want to come around me, right? 
But I find anger usually hides something else. And in this case, you get irritated when people uh, whine and uh, need pity or want people to feel bad for them because maybe they need it or maybe they just enjoy the attention. Now, a couple of questions slash hypotheses. Do you feel, because you're not comfortable with it either, so I'm curious if you ever received it in a real way in childhood because you said, especially not from your mom because it feels fake. So what happened? Why do we have that belief? So if you could ask yourself, you know, has my mom ever given me a compliment or said something to me that I trusted that didn't feel fake? Or there have been times in my life when she offered support, but she wasn't really there. It was like all lip service. Did I feel emotionally neglected? Because I think that's my hypothesis as to where this is coming from, is that what we needed from childhood, uh, meaning that we needed a certain kind of support or a certain understanding, and our parents either weren't around or were there, but didn't offer it in the way that we needed. Maybe it was kind of like buck up buttercup, or maybe it was like, you're good, you're good. And it was like some fake words, like you're such a tough girl, poor you, poor you, such a tough girl. Oh my God. And then it was like, move on, you know, I don't know with no follow through. I'm not sure. That's why I was like, I have a lot of questions, a lot of follow through for you to like, take some time to consider what your experience, like what it was like growing up. Did you feel heard and understood? Or is there experience where you had someone maybe move into your home or live with you? Is there something that comes up where you're like, oh yeah, that person really whined about it and got all the attention and took the attention from me. I have tons of um, friends. I even had my own issue with this growing up because my brother was born with a cleft lip and palate. So when I was younger, cause he's like three and a half years older than me, by the time I came around like to be two, three, he needed a lot of like speech therapy and all sorts of different head surgeries and stuff like that he was going through to fix what had happened, right? His cleft lip and palate. And I felt like I didn't get enough attention. And so I would try to do everything perfectly just to get more attention. And so him, you know, if he was to complain about like all of his stuff, which he really didn't, so I didn't have that, but I could see if he did that I would have a tough time with people complaining about things. I'd be like, oh, they're just taking attention from other people. And I would feel bad for anybody else in their, you know, in a relationship with them. And so I want you to try to consider where this could come from for you, because I think it's there. And then my last hypothesis, and maybe something worth digging into, is are we feeling overwhelmed in general? Because you said this past week, are we not sleeping well? Are we not eating well? Are we feeling stressed? Is there some other judgment or something that's happening? What's underlying? Because you said you've been finding yourself being unreasonably annoyed. So something's going on with you. What's happening? Do we feel pressure to be around people and we really need alone time? Is there pressure at work or school and we feel like we can't live up? Um, are our relationships with people in our family just kind of strained or fake and that makes us really frustrated because we don't like those kinds of relationships? Be a little curious, like what has happened? Why has this past week been so hard? Why are we so agitated? Are there certain things to, that we need that we're not tending to? Because again, remember, anger is incredibly helpful. It tells us something's going on. It can tell us a boundary's been overstepped. It can tell us that we're actually really hurt or that we feel misunderstood, that we feel misrepresented. It can tell us that, um, you know, uh, I don't know, we have to stand up for ourselves. Someone is, is, you know, saying something that's not true. I don't know. There's a lot of different reasons, but we have to be kind of curious about it, not judgmental. And we don't want 
you know, this anger to perpetuate. So we have to figure out where it's coming from and better understand it. So let me know what you find out. Okay. And I, I, cause I think there's some of that neglect cause you trying to downplay it to your dad, something you, for some reason, maybe don't feel okay taking any attention. And I'm wondering why. So let me know. Okay. Now there was a comment that said additionally, and I'm not sure if this really fits into the conversation, but I feel like there are a lot of parallels. I feel really annoyed when family members pick up the same hobbies as I have, or suddenly start to like the things that I've always liked to the point where I don't even like talking about my interests anymore. Last week, it went so far that it triggered the urge to purge again, which I haven't in a while because my cousin sent me a video of him playing guitar, which is the only interest that I've ever had for myself. It's especially bad with my sister as there are none of my interests that she doesn't do. And I feel so constricted whenever she starts doing something that I already do. I feel like I'm not my own person. That's your answer. And we'll get into that. But at the same time, I feel like the most awful human being for being able to, for not being able to be happy for them. Okay. A lot going on here. Everybody wants their own thing, especially you said that you purged. Eating disorders are a huge way for my patients over the years to be like, I have this thing that's only mine. And that's why we can get really agitated if we're around someone else with an eating disorder or we think someone else has an eating disorder. Because like, that's my special thing. Nobody understands, right? Even though you know, it's an incredibly common mental illness. So that doesn't surprise me. But the not feeling like your own person, I'm curious if your family doesn't believe in like privacy or there are no boundaries, everybody in everybody's business, or you expected to fall in line, like you couldn't make decisions for yourself. Do you have like helicopter parents? Because I know some people think like, oh, well, neglect is bad for kids, but I'm always around. And I'm like, helicopter parents can be just as abusive and just as harmful to their children. They just don't, you know, it's almost like, I like to think of it like taking care of a plant. If you don't water it at all, it's going to die. And if you water it too much, it's going to die. Same with parenting. If you don't do it at all, it's not going to be good for the child. And if you do it too much, it's not going to be good for the child. We need to find that sweet middle space where they have some independence, but they also have support when they need it. And it's hard. I'm, I don't have kids. I'm not pretending to know. I'm just talking psychologically. Okay. Now, the homework I have for you for this person who asked this question is, have you ever felt like you were your own person and you were able to be your own person? Think about it. Be honest with yourself. We're just considering not being judgmental. We're just considering. Have you ever felt like that? And if you have, how come you ha don't feel like it now? What has been taken from you? When did this happen? Do you feel like you gave it to someone and regretted it or was it taken? You know, just some things to think about. And then I'd also want you to journal about what it means. Because, so this is interesting. I'm going to talk this out and I'll probably come up with a better prompt as I kind of work it in my brain. But unfortunately now, because there's so many people on this earth, there's no way that you have something that's just yours. Like Sean plays guitar too. I'm sorry to tell you. I took guitar lessons for a while when we were in Santa Monica I know it's your interest and it's something you do, but you share it with a lot of people all over the world. But there's something about sharing it with someone in your family or your close circle that makes you upset. And what's the difference? How is that different? I want you to tell me about it. Tell me the story of how it's different from, you know, Taylor Swift playing a guitar, Sean playing a guitar, me learning to play guitar, and you and your sister. <laughs> I guess you and your sister, not you. How's that different between all of us and your sister? What makes it different? Did you always feel like you're overshadowed by her and you never got the attention that you needed? 
maybe you felt neglected. You know, those are the ways that I would try to approach this is like, where is this coming from? And what is it that I actually need? Because again, this irritability is really helpful. It's this like red flag that we stuck down somewhere. We're like, hey, hey, something's going on here. Anger tells us that something feels violated. And so it's important for us to dig in instead of ignore and act out. We need to figure out a little bit more about it and why it's there because it has a purpose. So why is it there? Okay, I hope that helps kind of, I know I don't have the answers, but you have the answers. That's the beautiful thing about therapy. Your therapist doesn't have all the answers, but they can help you, uh, like guide you toward the answers that you already have. Final question, question number nine says, hey, Katie, I've always had a hard time being vulnerable, although for others, I'm very soft and understand their deep emotions. Since being in therapy, I've thankfully learned to be more emotional for myself and express my vulnerability. My question is about going into the real world. I'm sometimes afraid that I'm oversharing now. I also relate to others, like I relate to my therapist, and I have to remind myself that they're not my therapist, and also that I'm not someone's therapist. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who said I talk like a therapist, and it's annoying. How can I be normal in the real world? Boundaries. What has happened is that you found this magical thing called therapy, and because you've never had a place to express it or felt good expressing it, and now you do, we're struggling to figure out how to navigate our, our relationships with this new helpful tool and this new skill, right? And so this oversharing, undersharing to me is always a red flag for an issue with boundaries. And you could dig into where you think that comes from. Um, you know, was there addiction in your family, abuse in your family? Does your family not have any boundaries or do they have extremely rigid ones? Or were you like the hero child where you had to pretend to be really great so that you didn't cause any stress for anybody else? You know, we, we have to be curious about our upbringing. I know people are like, oh, it's not always about our upbringing. It's not, but a lot of times it is because those are where our patterns are built. And those patterns are like this blueprint that we take out into the world and we try to make sense of it with. And if we don't have a good blueprint, if our blue blueprint is like, oh, there's no boundaries, everybody yells at everybody. Um, we don't talk about the fact that, you know, mom's an alcoholic. We just go out into the world. Then we're going to find ourselves in relationships with very similar people doing similar things because that's the blueprint we have. Does that make sense? Because like you can't build a house that looks different off of the same blueprint. Is that? I hope that's clear. Um, so I would encourage you to find areas where you are struggling most. It sounds like your relationship with your friends. Let's start there. We need to figure out what's appropriate to share and what's appropriate not to share. And if we're sounding like a therapist, um, a couple of things to consider where should you end and where should someone else begin? Where does the responsibility begin and end? Take some time to think about that because sometimes when we, we're talking like a therapist, we're overstepping a boundary, taking responsibility for someone else's problems or thinking that it's our job to solve it, which again is responsibility. And it's not your job. The job of a friend is to listen and to support. So instead of being like, I wonder if that comes from childhood and maybe the way that you're wrong, because that's what I would say as a therapist. But as a friend, I would say, God, that's annoying. Yeah, I find myself doing that too. It's the share, reshare, talk about it. Have we done this before? I feel like you did this before with this other guy. Maybe you did. I don't know. Hmm. What an asshole, right? There's no answers. We're not supposed to probe into that we can bring it up seems like it happened before i feel like your mom used to do that shit 
Maybe she did. We move on. We're not there to fix. We're not there to to always have the answers. No one likes a know-it-all. And being a know-it-all actually means that we feel, well, not always, but it can mean that we think our only value is in helping other people. People won't want to be around us if we're just us or we're not enough, right? We have to give. We feel like we always have to give. And that can be part of people-pleasing. That can be, you know, and that all ties back to boundaries. And I know I mentioned my boundaries workshop before, but that'd be another thing that could be beneficial for you or watching my videos that I've put out about boundaries could be really helpful. Um, But that will be, you know, and talk with your therapist about this. Let them know this is happening. Tell them that you think, you know, it has something to do with your struggle with boundaries. And maybe one of the things that I mentioned kind of rings true and you're like, oh, I think that's where it's coming from. That's where we'll dig in. And setting boundaries and upholding them takes work. And they're not like these one and done kind of things. They're like these flexible, but yet remind people that they're there type of things. And they're they're going to be things that, you know, we're, we're ever changing, ever growing, ever placing, replacing, talking about maybe ending that relationship because it was so difficult. You know, there's going to be a lot to it, but I really think that that will help you navigate this without being like all or nothing. It sounds like we're kind of caught in that black and white world when everything's kind of gray and we have to figure out what we're okay with sharing, what we're not okay with sharing. What are we okay with people knowing? What are we not okay with them knowing? And holding true to that. And I know easier said than done, but one thing at a time, one conversation at a time, one relationship at a time, um, and let your therapist help guide, help them. They will help you (laughs) help guide you um, to figure out where those things should be. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing the podcast and for talking about it with friends. That's really what helps me the most. Thank you for sending in your questions. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye.